You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee and uh, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Paul. Hello. Uh, So today I thought that we would record the podcast while we're actually driving, although you're the one driving and I'm the one operating the electronic device, just so that uh, everyone's clear we are in compliance with the law. I'm not distracted in any way. I'm not looking at the screen. I'm not holding it. It's... Nope, you're, uh, you're essentially just having a normal conversation with your passenger. Yeah, but I'm probably, uh, you know, paying more attention to the road than I am to the conversation, so bear with me if I'm not as eloquent or as intelligible as I try to be normally. And speaking of distracted driving, I would just like to say the thing that I love saying most in my life, which was, I was right. Yeah, you were right. I was right. But I I wasn't, I was never of the view that you were wrong, so. (laughs) We we can replay the recording. No. Um, For those uh, of you who have no idea what we're talking about, uh, two weeks ago, Paul and I discussed a cell phone case involving a person who has an immobilizing app on their phone. And there was a decision where the uh, traffic court justice of the peace found that this was a... Uh, a defense to a cell phone ticket. Well, he also mentioned the fact that it wasn't the fellow didn't have the phone for the purpose of using it while operating the motor vehicle. He had moved it at one point by picking it up and moving it from his dashboard to his seat. Um, and the JP came to the conclusion that that wasn't using the device. But it's hard to reconcile with those other decisions like the, uh, the, the dead one, battery the, case. The dead battery case, for example, where the phone could not be functioned could not function in any way as an electronic device Um, and uh, in that circumstance the person was still found uh, guilty for using an electronic device when they had it in their hand. Yeah and I think another um, important aspect about that as I said last last time was that you have this this definition of electronic device that includes so many different things it uh, it's not enough to have an immobilizing app and I'm really surprised that ICBC are the ones that are encouraging the use of this the immobilizing app yeah like they were offering as pilot projects discounts to drivers who were using this and yet they're encouraging people to use something that would still still permit the breaking of the law but they're not going to my understanding is that they are not following this pilot project. They're no. not going to do it because they realize basically all you have to do is put an immobilizing device on a phone that you don't use yeah. and, then, and then get your discount on your insurance and have another phone. So yeah. I've got lots of like, old phones that I don't use. Well, the, the money you save on your insurance might cover the entire cost of uh, the extra phone. and Maybe it's Certainly handy to have two time. phones, especially if you want to want to deal drugs or something like that. <laughs> or run a law office. Yeah, we have more than one phone for the office. Yeah. yeah. If, by Emerg- the way. Emergency backup phone. And if you ever want to text us a copy of your ticket or your notice of driving prohibition, you can text it numbers online somewhere. 
Yeah, well, I don't know what the phone number is. <laughs> we should probably <laughs> know that. Either, if you're, you're going to start down that line, Kyla, to fine. announce it. Maybe, yeah. maybe we should figure that out. Yeah, we should probably, but it's fine. It's online. Uh, <laughs> but that wasn't the only interesting case out of traffic court in the last couple of weeks. There was also another decision recently, and you had some um, insight into that this was coming because you'd heard about it. Um, a decision involving a person who tried to argue that... But, but, but we didn't even finish the first one, Kyla, because oh, the, okay. we have the decision from uh, the recent decision with the Constable Fodor. Yes, and Judicial so Justice Adair. So what happened was we had this first decision um, from uh, a Justice of the Peace sitting in, um, in uh, Colwood, I think, or Victoria, uh, who acquitted this fellow who had a disabling app on his business phone. And there was a big question as to whether or not that was appropriate uh, under the circumstances because he had used it, he had touched it and moved it. And this app, I mean, it's just a disabling app. It doesn't stop your phone from being an electronic device. Your, your phone can still be, uh, you know, meet the definition of an electronic device uh, regardless of whether or not it's disabled. So this fellow was acquitted and the police were talking to me and I was in the media and questions about the appropriateness of it and certainly people were going to uh, uh, try to use this defense in the future and um, so that was sort of where the discussion was going but at the same time we were wondering whether or not that decision would stand you know I, I became aware uh, that the crown intended to appeal it um, I haven't talked to anybody from the crown's office but this is what police officers have told me and uh, then we have another decision that just came out and this other decision was a um, was it from Vancouver? I guess it was. Yeah, it was a Vancouver police officer. Yeah. Uh, and Kyla, you might as well explain it. I'm so driving. in that case, it was a very similar argument about the fact that the, the person wasn't essentially using the phone. The phone was there and he was basically just moving it in the vehicle and that this wasn't sufficient to constitute use. And, and essentially the same argument as in the Tannhauser case, the one that, that you just summarized. And the court rejected that the Tannhauser case was even right at all. And and I think that's a, a quite a surprising thing to see because often you'll see cases distinguish, oh, it's, it's dissimilar because of this or this. But instead the court said, with the greatest of respect to Judicial Justice Gordon, that case is wrongly decided. Yeah, I haven't seen that very often. I had a, um, like 15 years ago or 14 years ago, I lost an over 08 case that was wrongly decided. I knew it was wrongly decided. Um, and uh, the Crown took that decision and went to use it in another case. It was a decision of uh, Judge Schmidt sitting in Vancouver. He's since passed away. Uh, and the Crown tried to use it in another case uh, with Judge Moss sitting in North Vancouver. And Judge Moss said right in his decision, this case is wrong. It's wrongly decided. And you don't see that very often. Um, you know, my, my client was wrongly convicted. I couldn't persuade him to uh, appeal it, despite the fact that another judge said within weeks uh, that that case was wrongly decided. But basically what we've got is uh, another uh, justice of the peace sitting at the same level of court, um, making a decision saying another uh, JP's decision from this court is wrongly decided. So that doesn't happen very often because there's this, you know, theory, if you're a lawyer or a judge, you know all of this. But it, there's this theory, obviously, of the comedy of courts that you uh, that you stick with the with their reasoning. 
uh, and the rule, if somebody's come up with a, with a reason or a, a way of thinking something through that's legal and proper and lawful. Um, and unless there's a famous case called Ree Hansard Spruce Mills, um, which basically says, unless the case has failed to consider some relevant legal authority or principle, it's supposed to be followed if it's the same level of court. So in this case, um, JJP Adair uh, said he wasn't going to follow it, as uh, did uh, Judge Moss when he uh, ruled in the decision where they tried to rely on that. Which is actually really exciting because it means that in all likelihood, one or both of these cases is going to be appealed because either the accused is going to say, well, it was wrong for him to not follow that case, or the Crown in Tannhauser is going to say, well, there's this conflict in the law. We've got different decisions going different ways at the lower court level. We need certainty in the law, and it justifies an appeal of something otherwise insignificant like a traffic ticket. So that'll be going to BC Supreme Court. That'll be interesting to watch. And now we can move on. And Oh, well, I guess the point is, the summary you should know now is don't try to rely on the 10-hour yeah. Thouser case because uh, chances are, I mean, there was problems with it to start with. Uh, again, as I said before, I like the, uh, the fact that the JJP was thinking about the actual intention of the legislation. Uh, but, uh, you know, from the start, we knew that there was problems with that. Uh, don't rely on it. Yeah, don't don't rely on Tannhauser and get a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get a lawyer because the lawyer is actually paying attention to this. Yeah. And, um, no, okay, I was really excited about this case because it, it raises really interesting legal principles that don't get argued very much, something called res judicata. Oh, yeah, okay, so this was also um, JJP Gordon sitting uh, in Victoria, I think. Yes. And... My understanding is that the um, that the um, accused was uh, received an immediate roadside prohibition, a three, seven, or thirty-day immediate roadside prohibition, and disputed that immediate roadside prohibition on the basis of uh, not being a driver, and succeeded uh, at the uh, at the IRP level, which is uh, dealing with an adjudicator at the superintendent of motor vehicles. And in a circumstance, too, where he had the burden of establishing that he wasn't the driver of the vehicle. So, yeah. So the, the standard of proof is that is a, a balance of probabilities. The burden of proof is on the driver. And the driver was able to establish um, on, a, on a balance of probabilities that he was not a driver. And as a result, the immediate roadside prohibition was revoked. Yeah, so he came to court with his immediate roadside prohibition review decision. He didn't come with any of the witnesses that had provided evidence in his IRP case. He essentially made a legal argument to the effect that there'd already been a judicial or quasi-judicial determination that he wasn't the driver. And so it was wrong for the court to prosecute him for the traffic offense on the basis of, of this, this inference that he was the driver. Which is interesting for a lot of reasons, because if you think about it, when you go to traffic court, you, you know, it's up to the Crown to prove that their case beyond a reasonable doubt. So pretty high standard. I mean, the highest standard we have in law. And when you're dealing with an immediate roadside prohibition, it's a balance of probabilities. So you sort of think that if they couldn't establish, even on a balance of probabilities, that you were a driver, um, how the hell do you establish it beyond a reasonable doubt? 
Yeah, and the... I mean, I don't know if it's a, a, a factor of the different systems, whereas with the IRP hearing, there's prohibitions on cross-examination and sort of the normal ways to test evidence. So the adjudicator couldn't test the evidence of, of this, this person, Mr. Sutton, and his witnesses. Instead, all the adjudicator could do was look at what was provided and, you know, determine it on a, on a lower a lower evidentiary standard or what it was. But the, the court said, no, your your IRP decision isn't isn't enough evidence to allow you to raise the defense of res judicata. Well, I don't think the IRP decision is evidence in that circumstance in any you event. filed it as an exhibit. Well, you know, you can file it as exhibit, but I don't think, think it's evidence of, of the element that needs to be proven or disproven, um, you know, that you weren't a driver. I don't think it establishes that you weren't a driver. It only establishes that another tribunal came to the conclusion that you weren't a driver, and it's a tribunal with different rules of evidence yeah. where there's no cross-examination where you have no idea what evidence was put forward yeah and the other the I think the other thing that judicial justice Gordon noted that's very important is that in an IRP case there's no obligation to provide sworn evidence and you know you're not going to be cross-examined because there's a prohibition on that whereas in traffic court when he didn't bring his witness um, who was supposed to testify to say he wasn't driving an adverse inference could be drawn that because she was already clearly a willing and and capable witness of providing this evidence, an adverse inference could be drawn that she wasn't testifying because she couldn't swear to the truth of that. We just drove through a uh, speed trap, so I was not paying attention. They were doing the other side of the road. Well, I know, but I didn't know when I first saw them. Um, the thing that I found interesting in the decision, um, on top of, I mean, I, I, I guess I would have predicted the decision, uh, but the one thing that I did find interesting was that he um, took issue with the fact that it's not clear and intelligible on the face of the IRP review decision, uh, the path to which um, the adjudicator took in order to get to that decision. Yes, this was the best part for me. A personal grievance for many years is that in IRP decisions, the adjudicators, if they revoke the prohibition, they never tell you why. They just say, mm, I'm satisfied you were not a driver. Mm, I'm satisfied your results were not reliable. But they don't analyze the evidence that led to that conclusion. And you filed a complaint a few years ago about this. Did I file the complaint or did you file yeah, the complaint? Yeah, no, you wrote to Suzanne Anton. Oh, I did. Yeah, I wrote to Suzanne Anton. I didn't expect anything from Suzanne Anton. I don't think she was uh, really she paying attention. She didn't care. <laughs> she didn't seem to pay attention to any of it. But the, um, and she, I don't think she has a whole lot of time for me, which, is, you know, in any Surprise, event, surprise. Well, no, I mean, I'm a, I'm a lawyer and I'm a citizen of our society and I have an interest in it. And I think she should have taken some time to consider it. And I'm frankly fucking pissed off that she didn't, but... In any event, the um, the adjudicators of Road Safety BC only give you reasons if they're upholding the IRP. Now, it wasn't always so. Uh, yep. Years ago, we would get decisions on ADPs and IRPs explaining, you know, the path so you could determine it. You could see. It wasn't as comprehensive as if the IRP were upheld, but you could at least see what evidence was submitted, what about it persuaded the adjudicator, and, or why the officer wasn't persuasive. Yeah, and the, so the reasoning was clear and it was available for you to see. And then they stopped giving us that. And I, the reason I know that they'll never acknowledge it, 
but the reason is that we were using decisions as precedent. Yep. And back to the doctrine of uh, you know following decisions from the same level of court, um, they there were some BC Supreme Court decisions that said you better explain why you're not following uh, these decisions if um, if you're going to choose to go another route. Uh, you know, telling the adjudicators that basically in the decision. And after that, their their response was, oh, okay, if if Doroshenko and Lee are going to rely on our previous decisions and throw them back in our face by asking us to revoke a driving prohibition in the same circumstances in which we revoked a driving prohibition for somebody else, well then, we're just not going to give any facts. Uh, so they can't use their decisions in the future for their, their value as precedent. And Suzanne Anton's response to you was particularly troubling because what she said is, there's no requirement in law for adjudicators to give reasons, but that's exactly what Judicial Justice Gordon found problematic in Sutton. There is a requirement in law for a decision maker to give reasons. And he, he goes through it. He does this, this interesting analysis where he says, I guess, you know, there's really no need for the reasons because their only appeal is a right of judicial review and you can't judicially review something you won. So, so, so long as the government's never going to appeal it, yeah. uh, an IRP decision, and they never have, they've never appealed when we were successful. Uh, I thought there was one time they might, but yeah. Yeah, they've never appealed when we were, yeah, there was, <laughs> um, there was one time, I don't think we can even talk about it, but the, uh, the, uh, they only ever appeal, uh, they, they never appeal, it's only an appeal if, if the applicant who's been unsuccessful on his uh, administrative uh, driving prohibition or immediate roadside prohibition review, um, files the appeal. That's the only time it's going to court. So they feel that that's the only time they need to give reasons, or at least that was what was implied by what Suzanne Anton wrote back to me. And it it flies in the face of uh, the direction from the court yeah. to give intelligible reasons Justified. Uh, as part of natural justice, because you can't see that justice was done. You, you know, it, 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 you have no idea. I mean, it kind of, you could walk away from that with the suggestion that, uh, you know, we succeeded in that IRP case. Maybe we succeeded because of something that was improper. Uh, you know, that, that might be what our client comes to that conclusion when they look at it. And we're, we're not doing that. And we don't want anybody to come to the conclusion that that's. And the other, I mean, the other concern about not providing reasons in these decisions is it creates no system whereby you can understand the law, right? Well, this, this is a tribunal, they're rendering decisions at their tribunal level. And there was actually a successful case in Ontario where somebody sued a tribunal for not rendering reasons and not making them publicly available. And the Ontario court found that this was completely wrong that the reasons need to be made publicly available because justice has to be seen to be done and people need to be able to access decisions to know what legal standards they have to meet. And it would certainly help me better defend my clients, other lawyers better defend their clients, and self-represented people who can't afford lawyers or don't want lawyers to better defend themselves if they could say, okay, this is why IRPs are being revoked. And it's not enough to say, oh, you just have to prove you weren't a driver. To know what that looks like, yeah, exactly. I'm just thinking of an example. Um, you know, earlier this week you were called by a lawyer who had an argument that he wanted to run, and 
uh, it was an argument that wouldn't be successful, and we know it wouldn't be successful, but had there been a, a database of these decisions, uh, then we would have, you know, you could, we could have just pointed to the database of decisions. We knew that it wouldn't be successful because of, you know, one-liner in a uh, BC Supreme Court decision that you can't expect that lawyer to have necessarily found, but if there had been a database of immediate roadside prohibition decisions where this issue had been considered and explained and discussed, then you'd be able to inform yourself about the law. So you come at it with an immediate roadside prohibition, um, you know, as a, at a disadvantage because you can't research the law on it. Yeah, and what I get from other lawyers is, you know, I did a couple of these, but I can't really figure it out, so now I just send them all to you. Yeah. Which is fine. I mean, fine for us, I've, we'll do I've it. figured it out. So, <laughs> all those I'm but still. The, but the only way we figured it out is by doing hundreds, doing it. Of, hundreds you know, and thousands, hundreds, thousands, thousands now, yeah, thousands, thousands, thousands. <laughs> hours of my life. Um, but I think the other concern there, um, and one that's really uh, maybe I'm being cynical, but I think also the government is cynical about this. You have remember a couple years ago when we did that freedom of information request for the adjudicators procedures manual and they withheld the grounds upon which an IRP could be revoked and the examples because and their justification to the privacy commissioner when we complained was that people might read that and then tailor their evidence to try and win their case well they, they yeah I remember I, you, it's all coming back to me as you tell me but I remember they said that it was harmful to law enforcement yes uh, was their grounds to you could, you could learn how to beat an IRP yeah god forbid that yeah. you learn what the defense might be yeah so they refused us this and, and we had to challenge it and eventually we got it and it wasn't exactly uh, you know some big surprise no what what the defenses were to an IRP mostly uh, it's a you know uh, uh, <laughs> There's, there's a few hundred defenses that we figured out, but it's not, we weren't surprised. But I mean, the point is that, that it, it exposed their... Cynicism. Their, well, not just their cynicism, their view that... Right, um, that everybody's tailored their evidence to try and win. Well, and that their tribunal is an arm of law enforcement rather than uh, an independent tribunal that tries to sort out issues between individuals and the government. Exactly. Um, and one of the arguments that the Privacy Commissioner accepted that we made was that it can't be harmful to law enforcement because how to win all sorts of other cases, including very serious criminal charges, is publicly available on on the internet on sites like Canly. Like, I mean, you can you can learn how to beat a murder charge, I suppose. I mean, if you want to be that cynical about it, but you can learn the defenses to murder and the arguments that would work in challenging the admissibility of statements and forensic evidence just by spending an afternoon on Canley. Watching forensic files. <laughs> that too. That's a good show. Yeah. Um, you don't need you don't need the IRP manual um, to. Uh, uh, to be withheld to protect law enforcement because law enforcement hasn't been hindered by the fact that the law is publicly available. No, of course not. And, and it's the same for the reasons and the decisions. And I mean, but, but, I, the, the, but the, they wrote that, and that, that was the, the their their position. It just still shocks me. Which is why uh, I'm of the view that their decision not to provide reasons and successful decisions is for that same purpose. Anyway, it's interesting. I, I, you know. Judicial Justice Gordon rendering this decision, dealing with the fact that there are no, there's no reasoning um, 
displayed or explained in an IRP review decision where there's a revocation was interesting because it's sort of the first time really it got before the court uh, because the BC Supreme Court judges who see IRP decisions, see these long reasoned, sometimes the reasoning is ridiculous, but long reasoned decisions, they don't know the other side of it. Um, you know, they, some of them come at it fairly cynically when they're doing it and, and looking at the decisions and trying to, you know, the path to the decision makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, but the, uh, I think it would add to their, their cynicism and, and read of it. I mean, the court looking at IRPs, if they could see that that is what's taking place, that there is no uh, intelligible way to determine why an IRP was revoked based on the decision that we get revoking it. Yeah, and I would like to say, just pointing out, as always, the theme of this podcast, we see driving law impacting other areas of the law. And while IRPs are driving law and traffic tickets are driving law, the law around natural justice, administrative law, and res judicata are all engaged in this one decision about somebody's no driver's license ticket. So we're in the uh, fast lane on the Coquihalla, there's no other cars there, somebody driving 108 kilometers an hour in the 120 zone. Um, and uh, only recent, in Tootil we're here. Well, recently I was talking to Ian and he thought that there may have been some changes to the signage uh, on the Coquihalla because in British Columbia we have signs that were installed um, which are uh, keep right except to pass rather than slower traffic keep right and they change the way that the uh, the lines are drawn on the road and that was something that Sense BC pushed for they basically wrote the legislation handed it to the government and you it can was hear Kevin Falcon doing all it. about it in the podcast with Ian Tutel. Yeah, and just driving through uh, one of those signs just now, it was uh, it was properly signed, and uh, I don't think that there's been any changes. Kevin's concerned that the NDP are going to try and change it back. I don't know why they would. Uh, I know they're probably considering the speed limit because of the number of accidents on the Kogala, but it's pretty safe driving here if everybody follows the rules. Anyway, with that strange little point. Paul, thank you for joining me. <laughs> Are we done? That went by very we're quickly. Done. Yeah, wow. we're done. Well, I'm going to talk, we're going to talk next with Roy Ho, um, who you know because he works for you, uh, works with us at Acumen, um, about ICBC's rate changes and what that means for insurance and whether it's actually going to change anything for drivers. So thank you very much to Roy Ho, also of Acumen Law, for joining us again on the podcast. Roy, I'm so glad that you agreed to come back. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, I guess I didn't, like, you know, scare you away too much the first time around. No, of course not. Always a pleasure talking with you, Pat. Um, I, the reason I wanted you here is because of your vast knowledge and expertise about um, insurance and ICBC. And uh, recently there was an announcement by David Eby about an overhaul of the insurance rate system in British Columbia. Yeah, yes, there was. Um, and it was uh, it's pretty big news. <laughs> Everybody's aware of it, about it right by now. Yeah, but it's it's a little bit difficult to follow, like how people's rates are going to be affected. So I thought it would be helpful maybe if you could give an, an explanation. Sure. Um, so the precise uh, way, like the fine details of how it's going to be calculated is actually not been made public yet. Um, 
although it's not surprising because uh, even how it's calculated now, the math behind it, or the formula behind it, um, nobody really knows. Uh, I'm certain you can get that information, but right now I'm sure they don't have the information for the new one yet. Um, basically, though, uh, it's a change from uh, to be more primarily focused on a driver-based system, mm -hmm. and your rates will be your premiums will be determined by the your driving history. Okay. So they're looking at like tickets that you got and taking those into a, account in affecting your insurance rates. No uh, accidents purely. Um, although tickets do um, will be changed as well. Uh, I believe they're increasing the rates for premium points, driver premium points, by twenty percent. Mm -hmm. uh, but they do not affect your actual yearly annual. Uh, insurance premiums. But isn't insurance premiums your annual already based on your accident history? Yes, it is. Uh, different then. So before it was following the vehicle more than the driver. Now it's going to follow the driver. So what that means is um, before the old system was uh, if you borrow somebody's car, you get in an accident, the accident attaches to the policy of that car. Because that's what's in, in effect at the time of the accident. Okay. Even though the driver may have his own car. So wow. now what would happen is instead of attaching to the car itself, it follows the driver. So it goes into that driver's policy of insurance, okay. even though it's a different car. And they're changing also. Like right now, if you have 10 years of safe driving, you get this maximum 43% discount on your insurance. They're changing that too. Yes. What's, what's the change look like? This change is actually one of the things I wrote a blog about um, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, but the change is uh, essentially you can't get a free accident until um, you've had 20 years of driving experience plus 10 years of um, no car accident. within so you the need 30 years behind the wheel. Uh, well, no. You need 20 years of driving experience and 10 years of that must be accident free. Wow. Right? So... Um, you could at the twentieth mark, you can get it if within the ten years. Uh, essentially, the clock starts after ten, and if you don't get an accident in the ten at the twentieth mark, you got twenty years driving experience. You should, in theory, get a free accident. In the okay. past, it was nine years. Okay, well that's that's crazy because I consider myself to be an experienced and a safe driver. Um, you know, I host a podcast called Driving Law. I know a little bit about driving, um, and yet. I would, under this system, not qualify as an experienced driver for those types of, of discounts and benefits. So that's for the free accident, which is one of the, I guess, one of the best um, perks you can get with uh, rewarding good drivers. Um, each year, you will also get discounts. This is part of the thing where there's no detail of what the discounts are. In the previous system, it was a, a nine-year period to cap at 43%. Minus 43% premium uh, discount. 5% um, five, 5 each year uh, was how it was calculated, and it keeps on going up up to the nine-year maximum, and you get a free, uh, at least one free accident. Okay. Now, it's they're telling you you get 40. You could get up to 40 years of discount, but it, they don't tell you what the percentage is each year or how it's calculated or maybe if it's in um, some kind of a grouping, like every five years or something like that. So that is very unclear how that works. Does it go beyond 43%? That's not really stated neither, right? Maybe, you know, after 40 years of uh, safe driving or accident-free driving, let's put it that way, 
uh, do you get 60% discount or something like that? Like, there's no indication about that. Hmm. Well, it seems unfair. Uh, yeah, so uh, as it's laid out right now, in the concept and in theory, it makes sense. Um, and, and your premiums will be based on, because like I said, it follows a driver. So they're, they're, they're telling us that theoretically, how it's calculated is how long you've been driving for and, and how many crashes you've been in. That's how they're going to calculate your premiums. So if you drive in less, um, you get a lower discount. If you're driving less and you've been in uh, crashes, you get a lower discount. If you've been driving long and you get into a crash, you get a lower discount. What that proportionately is, is really unclear. Like, nobody knows right now. And are they maintaining the same sort of definition of an accident, like an at-fault accident, where you're more than one-third liable for it? Um, the legislation has been amended to uh, include what the definition of accident is, but it doesn't actually clarify what um, at-fault is. Okay. Yeah. So, because I know I was in an accident and liability was was agreed to be one third, because I made that agreement in part on the basis of the fact that it wasn't going to affect my insurance rates to compromise on that point. Um, is this going to be retroactive for people who have capitulated in that way? Are people who were in previous accidents now going to be negatively affected? No, um, they're starting it retroactively one year from March 1st, 2017. So your 10-year um, clock of being crash-free starts from March 1st, 2017 and on. Each year afterwards, it will, like, so if you started driving in March 1st, 2018, uh, you, you'd be starting to count from that day on kind of thing, right? You have no record uh, beyond beyond 2017 or March 1st. Okay. Yeah. So, so what happened in 2013 won't come back to bite something. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Um, but what about those people who did make those those things as of a year retroactive to March March 1st? Is there any argument that they might have about um, about their rights being violated because they made strategic trial decisions on the basis of the state of the law at the time, which has since changed? Yes. I mean, certainly there is uh, an argument to be made about that. Um and there are, so right now, as it's stated um, on the ICBC website, um, they recognize unique circumstances. And mm -hmm. they said that there is a relief process for people uh, in these circumstances where um, the changes are detrimentally or adversely affecting them more so than it, it's intended to. Right. I, I don't know what that looks like, and I, and I presume that it might go through the CRT just like the cap on the minor injury claims. But okay. it, they didn't actually say that yet. But they said that, oh, we recognize, um, you know, it's, it can't uh, apply across the board to everybody. So we're going to put into into place a, a review or relief process for people who have been affected, right? Okay. So not everybody will necessarily be negatively affected if they've made that type of a decision in the last little year. Yeah. So at least that's what's been said or you know what? Right. That's what they say, and what they do is another thing entirely. As we know. Absolutely. So, I mean, the 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 idea is that it's supposed to um, work across the board for everybody, right? Right. Um, you know, like not in those unique circumstances where they made a deal or something like that. It's just for like everyday drivers where, um, you know, you're using your car for whatever it is, and there's no lawsuit involved, right? Okay. One of the complaints that I've heard from a lot of people is that for many, this will cause their insurance rates to go up. 
So right now, David Eby's is uh, David David Eby's saying that only a third of people are actually going up, and seventy five percent of the people are supposed to get uh, actual reduction. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Again, they, they haven't showed the math behind that, or you know the, the 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 calculations behind how they came up with those numbers. So I, I don't know who's going to be affected uh, the most. But again, the run of the mill driver who doesn't get into you know two, three accidents a year shouldn't be affected in this way. Is this not going to disproportionately affect people in communities like the Lower Mainland, though, because your insurance rates are in part calculated uh, now and under the new system based on where you live, and we all know that accident rates are higher here than places with less, less traffic? Absolutely, because it's a, it's a matter of frequency and probabilities, right? Um, you know, the more uh, exposure you have to... Uh, vehicle traffic um, and the density of vehicle traffic it increases your chance of getting an accident. It does dispor- disproportionately affect uh, urban centers. And they're actually changing the rates to reflect urban center risk too. In other words, they're raising the rates for urban centers. So the one-third of people that are likely going to be paying more are the one-third of people who are living in the most expensive parts of the province and are, uh, as a result, already very financially stretched. Uh, well, the we're being told that the one-third of the people who are paying more are the people who have been in more accidents. Now, the fact that you're in a jurisdiction that is a higher rate is affected universally across the board for everybody in that urban center. Right. I guess if you want to pay less for insurance, move to Fort St. John. It, absolutely. And you know what? You have a lower cost of living too. <laughs> yeah. If you want to buy a house, yeah. Fort St. John. <laughs> um, no. Okay. Well, fair enough. So you've, you've had the opportunity to review all of this. What do you think? Is it going to change anything? Uh, I, I think it will change um, some things. Uh, I think that uh, um, it, it is a little bit, I guess, uh more balanced approach. And I say that because many North American jurisdictions already have uh, a driver-based premium system in place. Okay. Um, We're one of the last that doesn't really do that. Um, And I'm talking about North North America as in like U.S. and Canada. Right. Um, And the the, the reality is that um, it's because uh, over the past like 10 years or something like that, In North America, all insurance rates have been rising. I think one quote was something like 8% per year, uh, year over year. Um, It's because more and more people are driving. Cars become more accessible. Uh, People, economy is good, so people have money. Uh, People rely on cars more, so then there's more cars on the road, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The insurance industry in North America actually has been pushing for a driver's base system for many, many years. And we're one of the last holdouts here. So it makes sense from, I guess, from the industry perspective um, mm-hmm. that it's been working. What doesn't make sense is, you know, in these other jurisdictions, they have a driver's base system, yet nobody is being labeled as bad drivers <laughs> to begin with. And next is that the rates are lower. Now, and then we're talking about urban centers too, right? Whether it's like, you know, whatever, like, I don't know what Chicago uses, but say Chicago or, or, or you know, uh, L.A. They're, these are major urban centers too, presumably driver-based because they have big insurance companies there, yet their rates are lower, right? Like, Alberta is super low compared to us, right? Okay. So, so you actually are in, in favor of this. 
Uh, I am in theory. Uh, how it's going to pan out as far as monetarily, um, that's yet to be seen. It it seems uh, to me somewhat disproportionate in the way that uh, they're they might be charging people. Because mm-hmm. again, in other jurisdictions, they're not charging quote unquote bad drivers more, right? Right, they're charging the the good drivers the same as the bad drivers and spreading it across the board. That's the old system. Well, the, 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 that's the old system here, is that they were spreading across the board. In, in the other jurisdictions where they have bad drivers, they're, um, they're, they are getting charged more, but they're not getting charged as much as us here, is well, what so I meant. Why do we pay so much, then? I, I have no idea. <laughs> that, that's a really good question, because, uh, like, uh, here, here's a really good example. I, I have a client that um, has two Ferraris or three Ferraris. I can't remember how many he has. Um, for the longest time, he came to me because he got in trouble with a car accident because he had Alberta plates. And the and he lives in BC. And the reason why he did that was because um, it was that much cheaper to get insurance. He's saving something around, uh, initially from the get-go, something about $30,000. Oh my god. Because there's a here there's a twenty five percent luxury tax on cars above a certain quota. In Alberta it's five percent. That that right from the get go he was saving like twenty, thirty thousand. Then there's the actual annual insurance policy, which it insures the same damn vehicle, whether it's here or there, but they're paying about a third less, right? Like yearly. So it made it made such a difference that you know, since he had like two of these cars, it just made sense for him. Uh, it wasn't. It's not proper though. It's not legal and all that kind of no. stuff. But but <laughs> okay. it, 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 he, he's probably got a problem there. He did, and that's where I went to go fix it. But the point is, is that uh, monetarily for him as a business person, it made sense to him, right? right? And it was just that much cheaper in the next jurisdiction over. It's like, why why am I paying, you know, uh, two times more or, or you know thirty percent more for something that is the same thing that they would pay for, you know, just right over there, right? For the same vehicle. So if you if you could improve the system in BC, and I think I asked you this last time, um, if you could improve the system in BC, would you have done what uh, the government is doing now, or or what would you have done differently? I I, I, I again I support the concept of driver based system. I don't know how they're the whether the way they're approaching is the best way of doing it, and, and I blog about this too because I. I question the underlying um, deterrence effect here about at least the way they're they're using the moniker of bad drivers. So they tell us that one third of people would have an increased rate annually, and they project something from depending on who you are as a driver, like how bad your history is, anywhere from fifty to hundred dollars, and maybe hundred dollars plus for really bad ones. And I question whether that increase is really going to make a difference on them being a better driver. I mean, if you had to pay 50 or $100 more a year to have the privilege of driving, would you not? Like, would well, that I stop mean, you? To Would that change your behavior over $100? Like, I guess it's a, it's a different question depending on people's financial circumstances, right? Yeah. Like, you you and I uh, are in a position we can, you know, probably scrape together another 100, 100 bucks a year. Some people can't. But I also think those people are probably not the problem drivers yeah. because they 
are careful about not getting in an accident because they are not getting tickets and not they can't afford it yeah. they can't afford to um, and I think the problem drivers are largely the people who uh, don't see the bigger picture consequences of their actions and who are in a financial position to just pay their way out of problems yeah so it, it I, I that's what I, I think too and I, I don't think that them promoting this as like you know this is supposed to make bad drivers better so we're not subsidizing risk and all that kind of stuff like really in reality if you didn't change it 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 makes no difference to these bad drivers quote-unquote right yeah so do you think then it would be better to uh, connect your insurance rates in in this notion of a driver-based system to not just your accident history but also your driving record and the tickets that you've received yeah so in like uh for example alberta um they actually do on their driver's base system. They actually do take into account your the tickets you receive and all that too, in in, in, a, in adjusting your insurance rate. So it, it makes sense to me to do it like that. Um, and, and Alberta's privatized too, mind you. So um, it, it does make sense. It, it so it's again the concept of moving the driver's base system makes sense. It's just the approach seems to be odd. To me, um, the way the way they're doing it, so like I don't really get completely all of it. Like for one thing, the ICBC is right now saying that this is, um, uh, I believe the term was, or not ICBC, it was uh, David Eby. Um, I believe the term he was is um, revenue neutral or something like that. In other words, this is not used. The purpose of solve the dumpster fire. Yes, it's not there. It, the purpose of this is not for to address the dumpsters fire. But then. You, you look at them doing retroactive uh, application of driving history to a- apply to these people moving forward. I mean, if you were sincerely or wholeheartedly saying that, oh, this is a more fair system, why don't you start from point zero for everybody? Mm-hmm. Right? Everybody starts now from this day moving forward. And I think they're saying September 2019 is when this is going to come into effect. Everybody starts at zero now. Build your history now kind of thing, right? Right. Okay. Well, um... Thank you. <laughs> As usual, you've taught me more than I, 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 I realize how little I know every time I talk to you. Um, you should, like, host the podcast instead of me. Sure, <laughs> law podcast. Uh, yeah, that'll just put people to sleep. <laughs> um, so, so thank you so much um, yeah, for breaking this down and, and sharing your opinion on it. And I think it, it's nice to hear from somebody who's actually mostly supportive of it because uh, I think we've gained been seeing the government get a lot of flack over this in the media and it's, it's nice to get that different perspective and a good explanation from someone in the know as to why so. yeah well you know how it is uh people always fear change right yes yeah that is true okay well thank you so much roy Great. and uh if people want to get in touch with you they can reach out to you at our richmond office the number is 604-370-3050 and to learn more about this you can also read the blog that roy wrote on our website vancouvercriminallaw.com thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of driving law i'm your host kyla lee and we'll be back next week with more exciting driving related content